Your ears do not deceive you. You have just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. Hello and welcome to Comic Book Yeti's Cryptid Creator Corner podcast. I am one of your hosts, Jimmy Gasparro, and I am here with a writer, a editor, and uh, all-around swell fellow, uh, Eric Palicki. Um, we are here to talk about Blacksmith, uh, The Key to His Heart, number one. Uh, as we're recording this episode, it drops uh, tomorrow, June 21st. So when you're listening to this, you're going to be able to go and get it and add it to your pull list, uh, especially if you're a fan of Blacksmith, the, um, the first five issues. Uh, but Eric, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad we could finally make this work. I know we've had a, a couple of uh, two ships passing in the night moments <laughs> before we can finally get together in the studio here. So thanks so much, Jimmy, for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you. I, 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 I tweeted it out right before, a little bit before we started recording, but I went back because I know we had done a written interview and I was shocked uh, at the passage of time to realize it had been almost exactly two years that we talked about um, the first issue of uh, Blacksmith. And um, so I went back through that uh, to, to make sure I, I try to cover new ground. <laughs> That's uh, yeah, it's time is a flat circle. And I think my, my internal clock has been further skewed by, you know, pandemic time and, and, and getting back into to the real world. So I totally understand that. It's amazing to me that it's been two years now since the first volume launched feels like we were doing this once a year and now here it is two years have passed between the, the series. Right. Yeah. I, I was, when I was looking back in that interview, uh, you had said something that you felt like in the, the beginning of the, the pandemic, which is now three years ago, um, you felt like you were kind of like, I, I stagnant or, or it took you a while to, to get going for like the first six months or so. And then you were kind of, you know, getting up to gear, you know, with blacksmith and, some of the other comics that you you had going out at that time. Um, I mean, you know, since then, in the past two years, have you kind of been able to keep yourself like going, keep things, you know, steady in terms of the comics you've been making? Yeah, I think so. I think that it's been a very interesting ride these past two years since I since I said that. And, you know, you tweeted out the the interview and I I peeked at it, you know, just to make sure I didn't embarrass myself then and or or now. <laughs> Uh, and, and I think so. I think that I've been busy. I've done a lot of not saying no. I have I have said yes to a few projects that were the conditions of the world and the medium and the industry at the time different. I might not have have agreed to. Uh, I did a book last year called Ninja Kaidan with a publisher that I had never heard of before. Uh, their their editor in chief reached out to me about about that book, uh, which was a fun indie book, ghosts fighting ninjas for five issues. You know, uh, what's not to love about that. It really sort of tickled my, my, uh, nineties, eighties, nineties kid heart, you know, it's just throwback to all those action movies, like the Steven Seagal and the Jean-Claude Van Damme's and the, the Schwarzenegger movies of, of that era. Just, just, uh, you know, and, and martial arts movies and, and things. So, you know, that's not a project I would have taken on. That's not really usually something in my wheelhouse. Uh, and I, I don't know that I would have said yes to that project were conditions different. And so, so yes, I think that's a very long winded answer to a, a very quick question, but yes, <laughs> I do feel like I'm, I'm firing on all cylinders again. Good. 
No, good. I mean, I, um, I'm, I'm glad to hear it because I'm, you know, a, a big fan of your work. I mean, especially as an editor, um, I've been, I was a big fan of both, uh, uh, a wave blue worlds, uh, maybe someday and, uh, all we ever wanted, which I, I know that you were on the editing team for that. I, I believe with, uh, with Matt minor and then with, um, I, I um, I guess is it Josh over at a wave blue world who edited all we ever wanted with you. Uh, so the, the two anthologies I did with Matt were actually three. Cause there was uh, this nightmare kills fascists, which was our black and white horror political horror anthology that really got us noticed by a wave blue world. Uh, we did that plus the two science fiction anthologies you mentioned maybe someday and all we ever wanted. And then on top of that, I also edited with uh, Joe Corallo, the, uh, the Dead Beats volumes, Dead Beats and Dead Beats London Calling. So that's five total anthologies, which is a lot of material to, to have sort of helped to shepherd into existence. Yeah, yeah, it is a lot. I mean, I have the, I have the hardcovers of All We Ever Wanted and maybe someday over on my, my shelf to the left. And they're, they're ones that I return to time and time again. Just some fantastic storytelling. Um, you know, I love those anthologies. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. I think uh, all we ever wanted, especially, is one that's that's near and dear to my heart, and that also includes not only work I'm really proud of as an editor, but uh, the eight page story that I wrote for that book, Two Left Feet, with uh, uh, with Eric Donovan, uh, is I think maybe my favorite thing of my own writing that I've ever done. Oh, that's awesome! Um, I'll have to make sure that I I go back and. Uh reread that next time I pull it off the shelf. So, uh, so diving into, to blacksmith, um, it's you, it's, uh, Wendell, uh, Cavalcanti, uh, Rob Steen, um, the covers by Liana Kangas is the whole band back together. Yep. Everybody's back together. Still being, uh, shepherded through the, the whole editorial process by Sarah lit. Oh, um, awesome. You know, getting words of encouragement and, uh, from from Tom Pyre and, and and Stuart Moore up on high, so it's it's def- definitely a return engagement for the whole crew. Yeah, and I really like a lot of the stuff that uh, Ahoy is doing, and um, I feel like this is a, a blacksmith's kind of like an interesting choice for Ahoy. It is black and white. It's it's a noir. It's a little different than than some of the other books that they're putting out, but it really does have a great like sense of humor to it that I really, really appreciate. Um, yeah. I mean, the first five issues, I rereading them again, it, it's just a, it's a wonderful story. I like how each issue kind of starts in, in the same spot and gets going from there. And um, I mean, really fantastic character work as well. Even all, even all the, the minor characters at uh, the vampires, Chad and Todd um, Aster, I think is probably like my favorite. Um, <laughs> just uh yeah just i i love all how ev- all those characters kind of like come together um you know was there a- any with with blacksmith um the key to his heart it, it, were there any uh particular elements of either noir or detective stories or even the kind of monster aspect of it that you were you know wanted to incorporate more um or do you kind of keep the uh, keep it on the the same track and don't mess with the, uh, the formula because I thought blacksmith, uh, you know, the first five issues were very successful. Well, I thank you for all of that. I appreciate that. Uh, the, 
I will say right off the bat that if you loved a character from the first volume, assuming they survived, they do at least make a small appearance in The Key to His Heart. So you had a fan favorite character outside of Strummer and Ben, our, our two mains, you're going to see them again, uh, which I was very happy to be able to do. Uh, I didn't do a whole lot in terms of uh, introducing new new myth- mythological elements on top of what we've already seen. But what mm-hmm. I was able to do is kind of do some world building. So we know that, you know, Los Angeles for reader, uh, for listeners who might not be familiar, Strummer and, and Ben are two uh, main characters are private detectives who kind of operate both in the normal mundane world, as well as in a secret supernatural underground that that thrives in Los Angeles, because if you're going to write a noir story, you've got to set it in Los Angeles. That's something that I learned from Raymond Chandler. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so I wanted to kind of, okay, so we know that these, these, these creatures exist. How do they, how do they interact without everyday ordinary humanity getting wise to them. So I was able to kind of play with some of the mechanisms of how that would work in Los Angeles. And then Wendell, of course, uh, my frequent collaborator drew Atlantis wasn't built for tourists over at scout, as well as the first volume of blacksmith. He is a native Brazilian. So uh, we did have a couple of opportunities and I'm very excited about this to fold in some Brazilian folklore and mythology in addition to this, this, the stuff that we typically talk about in the Western world. So some South American uh, uh, imagery and folklore and creatures we were able to fold in. Uh, and they, you know, that was at his request, things he wanted to draw, some things that are part of his culture we were able to, to, to incorporate into the story. I'm really proud of that. Plus, of course, if you've seen the cover to the first issue, Liana's fantastic use of, of, of heavy blacks, but there's a unicorn on the cover. So you're going to get a unicorn. <laughs> um, yeah, I really, I, I like the cover. And I think I also saw, um, is there going to, is there like a, is Tim Seeley doing a cover? Yes. So Tim Seeley is our issue number one variant cover artist. Nice. I am, you know, this is an embarrassment of riches. I got Steve Pugh and Jamal Eigel, who, uh, you know, Jamal Eigel is, is someone who I count as a friend in the medium, so in the industry. And getting him to do a cover for us was was amazing for the first volume. And then a longtime fan of Steve Pugh. And then uh, for volume two, Tim Seeley, you know, another industry acquaintance, did the variant for issue one of the key to his heart. And then we have Shannon Wheeler of too much coffee man fame doing our variant for issue two. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that's right. It, it, it is an embarrassment of riches. Um, I mean, you know, uh, I, I've, I've seen Liana's work for, you know, a while now in terms of like variant covers, but to have Liana, to have them as the, you know, handling the, like the cover A's is, is pretty great. All the covers, um, for, the first series I thought were tremendous. Yes. Liana also designed our logo for the book. I don't know that that kind of uh, gets lost because the cover art is so amazing. And that fifties pulp paperback design coupled with their love of the neon color palette. Mm -hmm. But 
but they also designed the blacksmith logo. Um, I wanted to ask, cause you said about setting it in LA. Um, I mean, are, I, I, are you based in, are you based in like LA or you, I thought you were like in the, like, the Pacific Northwest. Do you have to, That's right. you have to scout like locations. Have you been to LA enough where you're like, Oh, I'm going to use this. I'm going to use that. Well, I've been to, I've been to LA enough mostly to visit my sister who, you know, lived out there for 13 13 years before she recently relocated to, to Austin, Texas. But yeah, I, I spent a lot of time in LA visiting my sister and, and her circle of friends. In fact, uh, one of the last times I was out in LA visiting her, we went to, uh, she, she, she took me to a speakeasy for the first time, you know, which is of course, you know, that was kind of a fad pre COVID these, these speakeasy bars that, you know, you had to know someone who knew someone to be able to, to know where it was. Right. Um, and she took me to one and I was kind of able to, uh, add some supernatural flourishes to it, but then kind of also use that experience in the, uh, in the story that we're telling with the key to his heart. Oh, that's pretty cool. I like that. Uh, being able to, to use that. Um, yeah, I mean, we've been talking about it a little bit. I'm assuming, you know, going into, volume two that that folks are familiar with, but uh you know for anyone who isn't i mean strummer and ben are you know run a detective agency and um there's certainly the the supernatural element to it uh definitely a fitting a guest for the cryptid creator corner between blacksmith and um atlantis wasn't built for tourists yes um you know so as um but I don't want to give anything if someone's listened to this and hasn't read volume one, but I will say, you know, based on where things end, um, in terms of calling volume two, it's, it's, I mean, the name of it is blacksmith. So I'm assuming we're going to see Rainsford black in, in, in some capacity again, although we'll say towards the, the, the end of the issue, he wasn't left in the, the, the best of circumstances, but seems like a slippery character that Rainsford black. <laughs> yes, we will. Uh, we will see a return of Rainsford Black, and I think you're right. It's difficult to talk about the first volume without spoilers, and especially in terms of that character and and his yeah. dynamic with with our with with, with our heroes. Uh, but it, there is going to be circumstances that pulls Strummer back into Rainsford's orbit, and that sets off their big case. It's going to be a different relationship that those two characters have this time. But I do think that I do a little bit more to humanize Rainsford and give you an understanding of where he comes from, why he is who he is. Mm -hmm. Uh, If not entirely redeemed, at least sympathetic. Um, And he is the, the, his in the title. Uh, so it is definitely going to delve into to his history. Oh, okay. Um, I just out of, I guess, personal curiosity, because I, I like how much I like the first volume. Will this volume, or perhaps if there's future volumes, delve into Strummer or or Ben's past, or at least as far as those characters are concerned, you're more interested in the story going forward? I think... We gave Strummer, I think, her moment in the first volume to kind of come to terms with where she's been. Sure. And so for her specifically, 
uh, this is going to be, it's going to be looking forward for her. Uh, Mm -hmm. Not always, you know, this is noir fiction. This is, you know, with horror elements. These are not genres that typically leave our main characters in the best place. You know, you don't usually get a happy ever, happily ever after ending in a, in a noir uh, mystery. So I, I can't promise that, but in terms of where she is headed, uh, I think that we left her in a place where she's finally comfortable in her own skin and, and satisfied with who she is and the part she plays in both of these sort of worlds she populates or, Mm -hmm. or, you know, inhabits. So I wanted to push that forward and it's really, uh, the volume two is really going to be all about her trying to shepherd other people along that same path. And whether or not she is equipped to do that is going to be one of the big questions of volume two. Uh, I've, I've said elsewhere, volume two is very much her empire strikes back. So I really do hope that we get to have a third volume because I'm not sure that I, I would, I would like to carry the story forward for at least one more, uh, volume. And in that volume, I really want to to tackle Ben, who I do think, uh, you know, he deserves to have his story told as much as Strummer. Yeah, I mean, Ben, who provides, I, I think, a lot of the, you know, humor or like lighter elements, at least his personality just comes through. And I love the way Wendell draws him, um, but, you know, uh, especially in the, the black and white um the Wendell's line work and uh, I just think are, are fantastic. And really, I mean, Ben, ben leaps off that page. Um, just a phenomenal character. Yeah, he's, he's fun to write. And I think he is the, the key to making this, you know, going back to something you said earlier, I recognize that Blacksmith is kind of an outlier when you look at the catalog of Ahoy's books in mm-hmm. that, you know, they are a friend of mine, refers to Ahoy's catalog as as sort of funny vertigo. And okay, in, yeah. ta- in, in talking to uh, <laughs> talking to Tom Pyre, uh, I think I heard him say on another interview, in fact, that contrary to what you'd think, Ahoy books don't all have to be comedies, but they all have to have a sense of humor. And I think thanks to Ben, we give this book a sense of humor, even though it's not, it's certainly not a comedy. Yeah. Yeah, it's not, but I, I mean, it, 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 it does have um, more of a, of a, you know, a modern sense of humor, modern sensibility injected into it more so than a, a traditional noir. But sure, I mean, it still definitely works, you know, as a noir. I mean, I think of that last interview when you and I talked about volume one two years ago. You, you mentioned, I think, uh, comparing volume one to like the Maltese Falcon. And drawing on influence of like Nick and Nora Charles, was there any other particular noirs that you looked at? Um, you know, in terms of you know volume two to you know draw some inspiration from. Uh, so, so yes. Uh, again, going back to the LA connection, uh, I rewatched Chinatown before I started writing this, and that's. I think there's more of a, of an atmosphere. It's, it's not plot wise. I don't think it's similar to Chinatown, but there's mm-hmm. definitely a similar atmosphere that, that we're able to maintain. And actually a couple of, uh, of modern and neo-noirs that we, that I really looked at were uh, a, a movie from the, uh, the eighties with Mickey Rourke called Angel Heart. 
which is another oh, supernaturally yeah, okay. tinged yep. noir story. And uh, great I Mickey Rourke performance. Excellent, excellent film, and a very young Lisa Bonet. Uh, and and you know the the, the De Niro cameo. But uh, the other the other movie that I uh, or the other show that I I really leaned on was uh, Veronica Mars, specifically how uh, season two of Veronica Mars builds on and informs what would otherwise have been a uh, a very satisfying season one if that show had never gotten a second season pickup. Uh, I think those two. The, cl- the almost clockwork way in which those two, those first two seasons uh, work together is kind of something that I wanted to do and mimic with Blacksmith Volume 1 and Volume 2. Oh, nice. Uh, I, 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 li- I like those as touchstones for, I, I think um, Veronica Mars was something my, my, my wife watched. Um, and I, it was one of the things I, I think binged in the early days of the pandemic. I had never seen it before, but... Um, yeah, very very much enjoyed those early seasons. Yeah, it's not to say that the later stuff doesn't have its moments, but those first two seasons just work together so well. Mm-hmm. All right, fellow cryptids, now seems like a good time for a break. I'm always looking for a way to display my comics, but unfortunately, I am not very handy or crafty as it were luckily i have come across crafty comics and they have a way for you to display your comics even uh, comic books that are already slabbed if that's your kind of thing i recently got a flex frame which has customizable backings and interchangeable border colors i was able to put in a frame a comic book it's batman elmer fudd uh, number one by tom king Lee Weeks. It's signed by both. It's one of my uh, favorite signed comics that I got at Baltimore Comic Con, and I was able to figure it all out. It looks great in the frame, and I can't wait to get it up on the wall. It was super easy, and I uh, have a slew of comic books now, and uh, much to my wife's chagrin, I think I'm going to create a wall of some of my favorite signed comic books, Um, and Crafty Comics was super easy to use. And I like that you can have a different border color along the background to kind of go along with the theme of the cover art. And yeah, it was a, it's great. And uh, I absolutely love it. So check it out. It's Crafty Comics, C-R-A-F-T-I-C-O-M-I-C-S.com. Use the discount code YETI5 and get 5% off your order. And now back to the Cryptid Creator Corner. Are you... Are you, are you still not outlining anything? Just keeping it all in your head? <laughs> I still don't write outlines. Uh, uh, does that ever mess with you in terms of like continuity or once you, you know, are you able to, to kind of like do all that before you start to script? Like in your I head? usually do. I usually do that before I script. Uh, I usually have it in my head. Uh, I did do a couple of, projects where i had something akin to an outline uh recently Mm -hmm. for some 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 yet to be announced yet to be finalized projects oh cool Uh, you know the thing that the the place where you uh you get stuck when you're not an outliner is that uh you then have to figure out different ways to tell this story without any help when you have to go to the pitch portion of it 
and having an outline and being able to like show a story Bible to an editor would be a, a big help. So maybe I should, uh, maybe I should change my ways. No, I mean, if it works, if yeah. don't change anything, Eric, <laughs> if, it, if it works, uh, I, I, I just have thought about that because I, 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 you know, no matter what it is, like in my regular day job, I, you know, I have to constantly take notes or outline things and in order to, you know, keep track. I, I can't, I, I can keep some things in my head, but mainly now it's just like old movie and like television shows from the eighties and nineties <laughs> trivia. That's like all that's left up there. Um, and some, some random comic facts. That's, that's about it. Um, you know, I, I keep going back and forth from like volume one and the differences in volume two, but I, it's because I'm curious uh, kind of about that, that, that growth. And when you're, you're thinking about, well, we, we did this, we did these five issues. We're going to continue this story. And wh where do I want these characters to go? But also, you know, those, uh, what things am I going to draw from? What am I going to be inspired by this time in terms of if it's a, a different noir or a different TV show, like we talked about, but you know, that same line, music is also, you know, so important in terms of volume one, you know, especially the clash. Are we seeing that through line or just like other elements uh, or other inspiration will, will other musical influences be in volume two? Are we? So I think what I really leaned on this time, of course, you know, the clash is my favorite band of all time. So that was, you know, that was just my little Easter egg when I was able to to include that in the first volume, of course, not really thinking that there was much of a chance at a volume two. Mm -hmm. uh, but I did continue that. And I do have a playlist and I will probably, as we are recording this, post the, uh, the Spotify link on Twitter tomorrow, uh, the playlist that I came up with as I was writing this book. And it's, it is still some clash, still some post clash mm -hmm. Joe Strummer and Mick Jones work and also a lot of bands that would on their own cite the clash as a major influence some you know a lot of uh you know pop punk ska Springsteen the Gaslight Anthem so all of those things that if you were to corner any of those musicians and say who are your biggest influences they would also say the clash so 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 yes and no I guess yeah, no, I mean that. I, yeah, I was just curious, but yeah, I love uh, when writers say that they, or even artists, when they say, "Oh, yeah, this is what I listened to during when I was creating," or "This is the playlist." I, I've brought it up on the podcast before with different creators that have done that, but uh, I always enjoy kind of having that that music aspect to it, especially if the comic has some type of, um, you know, nod to music or the character's a big fan of music. I'm always interested and. In, you know, now at 44, it's how, how I discover new things. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, you know, I wanted to ask you in terms of the, the process of there even there being a volume two, you know, like you mentioned, was it something that Ahoy came to you or you were like, you know what? I really think we, we got a strong story for volume two and you and Wendell pitched it. So this is, this is an interesting story actually, because You've read some of my other my other work, and you know that I have I have a uh, what some would say a bad habit of writing 
open-ended stories always kind of with that sort of blind hope that it's going to be the thing that takes off and and I can just keep telling those stories forever mm. but with with blacksmith I know with a little bit of irony that this is the first time that I cared so much about these characters that I wanted to give them all just a moment of appropriate closure at the end of the first volume because the medium fickle as it is re, you know readers fickle as they are i didn't really think that we were likely to ever get a second volume so the first time that i was given the opportunity to write a second volume is for the book that i think has the most complete ending so oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah a, a bit of a pickle but but um, uh, but you know like once i was able to figure out uh so so to answer your first question they came to me after the f- for the final issue had wrapped. I'm not sure if it was out in stores yet, but okay. they came to me and said, "Hey, sales were strong enough. The, re- the the critical reaction is strong enough. Let's do a second volume. Are you guys in?" And of course, I said yes without really thinking about what that meant. And uh, it took me a minute, but once I was able to get back into the heads of these characters and figure out where they were going based on where I had left them at the end of the first volume. It was, it was like, you know, going home again. It was, you know, like revisiting old friends and it was a very easy process. And now I'm back to my old, my bad habits. And volume two is definitely a, you know, left at a place where we're hoping that we can get at least one more volume. Hint, hint, ahoy. If yeah. you're listening. I, I hope so. Um, well, I mean, strummer, um, it's just such uh, an interesting character. Um, I, I love how she's written. Um, and she's a, a, a bit messy. You know, I, I think as a kid, I was when, when I first my the first time I ever heard of like of Sherlock Holmes. I was such a huge fan of like Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories and like this detective that thinks of these things that nobody else can think of. And he's brilliant. Um and I was also a big fan of like the Hardy Boys case file books. I read like every one of them. Uh, the older I've gotten, though, I find that I like my detectives. And, the, you know, whenever I want to read one of those stories, like a bit messy. They don't have to know everything, but they I want them to be committed and dogged and interesting people. They don't have to be perfect. And I mean, Strummer just kind of fits that bill. And Ben, as I mentioned before, is a great character and such a, a kind of a great compliment to to strummer um yeah i i i is it is is it is it tough to walk that line when you're writing the character because we've seen so many different you know types of detectives from sherlock holmes to a character like you know columbo to um i guess i well i Natasha Leone in like poker face is not really a detective, but um, she can tell if people are lying. But is it tough to kind of walk that line to the type of character you want to create? Um, yes. And I think, you know, you bring up poker face, which I love. And that's a that's actually a pretty good example of kind of where I what I what I envision strummer oh, is okay. that uh for the audience, Strummer is a werewolf and she is using her sort of supernatural abilities as a werewolf for enhanced senses, which kind of give her an advantage when she is dealing with normal everyday uh, 
uh, everyday court cases, she's got a bloodhound's sense of smell, so it's easy to track a missing person. She can, uh, uh, you know, tell when you're lying because of her enhanced hearing. Those are things that give her an advantage when she is dealing with the sort of everyday mundane cases that a normal uh, person hiring a private detective might have. Mm-hmm. But in the first volume, we take her out of that comfort zone and we throw her into a world where she actually loses that advantage over the other supernatural cr- creatures that uh, populate the spaces she has to to delve into as in, in for that case. And it takes away that advantage and she actually has to be a detective. And I'm not entirely sold on whether she's a particularly good detective once <laughs> you, once you, you know, wipe away the advantage. Right. Once right. you wipe away that handicap, is she actually uh, a good detective? Right. Which is something Strummer kinds of, kind of acknowledges at certain points about herself, which I don't know, kind of like endears or at least when I read it to me. Um, and, and I think probably other you know, other readers, um, who are like taking her in. Um, yeah, I mean, but I, I think her like kind of dedication to, to what she's, she's going after, I think is, is a lot of what I respond to as well. Um, you know, when you, um, because I'm a big, I'm a fan of, you know, TV shows like supernatural and I, I kind of love those types of elements. Um, uh, there's so many different characters that come up on that show or monsters or cryptids or whatever it might be. Some that from folklore, different cultures, some I've never heard of. Um, I mean, kind of, what do you do when you're like, Oh, I need something here. Like what I need a character like Aster. I'm going to make Aster this. Like, do you, do you have like things that you lean on? Do you have like a big book of, well, I think that it comes. <laughs> I think it comes from, like you, a lifetime of of fascination and interest in that. Generally, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I love mythology and folklore, and I, mm-hmm. you know, devoured you know books about that subject as as a kid. So, I I can pull on that. I can go to, like I said, I wanted to, to bring some things in that would would make this feel like Wendell's story too. Uh, yeah. And then worst case scenario, I would, uh, I'll just make it up. You know, there's a, there's a creature in the first volume who is a a sort of demon creature that, uh, was more or less, uh, I wanted something Lovecraftian, but not necessarily Cthulhu himself. Uh, so I, I kind of just, envisioned what a demon would be and that's Mm -hmm. that's something that's not from existent folklore yeah yeah that's true that's a good that's a that 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 was that is a very fun and i i'm i you know very fun and unexpected example um that was you know plus it lets us you know do a little bit with in spite of the the sort of terrifying nature of of what we're dealing with i think there's a couple of really humorous moments in spite of you know what strummer is facing in that moment Mm-hmm. so yeah cool um so with uh with volume two now it's also going to be five issues yes okay and um is it uh i guess a, a monthly rollout yep monthly rollout uh 
So it should be uh, starting on the 21st of June and then the third Wednesday of every month moving forward until we, until we wrap. And then uh, there's going to be, you know, a a collected edition coming around Christmas time. Oh, perfect. Um, I mean, it's, 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 it is such a, a great concept in terms of being able to be, you know, serialized. I mean, um, even though it is kind of funny that this was your most complete, you know, story in terms of the ending and now you're doing a number two, but, um, I mean, I think it does work. Like the, the you have a, a situation where you have a concept where it can be, you know, self-contained, um, in five issues and tell a complete story and just tell like, uh, you know, another adventure. Um, I mean, cause it's tough. Like it just seems like, I mean, I've only been around indie comics and on Twitter for, you know, a handful of years now, but the days of like 20 to 30 to 40 issues doesn't seem like that happens too often anymore. No, I think you always, you always aim for, a four to five issue miniseries. And if you get more, then it's just a privilege to be able to continue your story. And I always kind of write in that sort of modular way where if if five issues is all we were we were given, mm-hmm. then you know, I think I did write by Strummer and Ben in the first volume. I mean right. I'm tickled. I can't express how excited I am to continue the story, but I, I always kind of write with that sort of realistic view of 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 the the medium right now in the industry right now where things right. are kind of tough and so four and five issue stories yeah um do you ever get i mean you know i haven't done this for for a number of years and in your role as like an editor do you ever get or you know i'm sure you do but in, like frustrated by you know by the industry or by by aspects of it i mean because I think last time we talked, you had a, you know, you, you do something else full time, you know, yeah, and so still do. Yeah. And you're, and you know, I don't know, I don't know how anyone works full time and still finds time to crank out the either as a writer or an artist or letter or anything, you know, several series of comic books. So kudos. Um, but do, do you get frustrated by it? Do you, do you still find things that, you know, reinforce your, your love of the medium and and wanting to to write and tell these stories. Yeah, I mean this is kind of you know these 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 are my people. Like I I love going to cons and and running into people. Uh it's like going to camp. It's going away to camp and seeing all your camp friends whenever I go to a convention and mm-hmm. and then getting to interact with people, you know, like yourself and 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 other creators and other people who are uh in the industry in some way. Uh, that's always uh, it's always energizing to me i usually come back from a convention just with a a renewed sense and a renewed desire to create right uh and i'll keep doing it as long as i have those feelings but yeah it is frustrating that uh you know we had the comics broke me uh hashtag a couple of weeks ago as we're recording this and that's been you know, somewhat heartbreaking to read through some of these, these stories. And I, I think that there's a lot of, on the publisher side, there's a lot of, there's a lot more that publishers could be doing in hand in hand with the creators to make the, uh, 
the medium more equitable for the creators, but also like we need to start thinking about how we're going to build the audience. If we're going to sustain ourselves as a medium, we need to be finding people who are willing to financially support the medium in some way. How do you, if, if not by shelling out four and $5 for a, for a comic, then how else do we, how else do we monetize this? Which is, you know, it it always feels a little gross to be talking about money when you're talking about a creative endeavor, because all you really want to be doing is creating. And, uh, but I think those conversations need to be happening where we start talking about, you know, the big two are increasingly, uh, especially one of them, I'm not going to name names here, but seem increasingly uh, obsessed with selling more books to a smaller and smaller audience. And, you know, how do we build that audience? How do we really get new readers into comics? I don't know that I have the answers, but I think those are the conversations we need to be having. Because as soon as, you know, as soon as we can get audiences back and when i say back i don't necessarily mean that we need to be obsessed with getting lapsed readers back but how do we get the audience how do we grow the audience again yeah yeah and i uh, mean especially when you see numbers in terms of like ya or middle grade books are doing seem to be doing like extraordinarily well there are you know several creators that are doing like fantastic in terms of the numbers and how do we take comics for you know, older readers or adults and, you know, reach that audience in terms of whether or not it's, you know, single issues or, or, you know, graphic novels. Um, how do we can, how do we convert a uh, Raina Telgemeier reader at 12 years old to an <laughs> right. image comics reader at 15? Right? Yeah. How do we do that? Right. Right. Yeah. How do we get somebody who has every issue of Dave Pilkey's <laughs> books and, and how do we get them supporting, you know, crowdfunding campaigns down the line? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, someone will figure it out. <laughs> well, you know, and I, I know there was a lot of noise made of, this is sort of a tangent, but we talk about crowdfunding campaigns. I know there was a lot of pushback when boom started doing crowdfunding campaigns and they started with this Keanu Reeves book. Yeah, uh, Berserker. Berserker. Uh, yeah. And and you know, it's a good book. You're you've got, you know, uh, a, a talented creative team outside of Keanu. And I think that that was by and large a good thing for crowdfunded comics. And the reason I think that is because the hardest crowdfunding, the hardest Kickstarter to back is your first one. Once you have an account, once you're paying attention, once you're reachable through uh, their marketing emails, it becomes infinitely easier to get those people to come back to Kickstarter and throw more money at, at interesting books. So, uh, yeah, I'm, well, I'm, I'm proof of that. I didn't really know about Kickstarter until the pandemic. I had just, they've been around for, I don't know, 10 years or more, right? I think it's been at least 10 years that I think it's at least a decade Kickstarter has been around, but I did, I never really backed anything. I might've heard of it until the pandemic started. And I think, I mean, I've I've probably backed. My wife doesn't listen to this podcast, so I can say that at least like 150 projects <laughs> since the pandemic started. So, yeah, I'm 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 proof of uh, of that. They send me those emails, like, or somebody has a new project, and they're like, "Yeah, you want to check out a new project by so and so?" And I'm like, "Yeah, don't mind if I do." <laughs> 
and and the you know the the work is is as good as what you know people like Charlie Stickney and Erica Schultz and uh you know Jared Lewin as we're writing this just launched southbound this morning and yep. uh uh you know this work is just as good as as something you would pick up at your local oh, comic yeah. store so yeah i i i i the episode came out I guess last week or so, but I interviewed Grant Stoy, um, who's the writer of SideQuest, which was a crowdfunding project uh, on Kickstarter that's now being published by Scout. And um, oh, uh, on that note, no, Grant, I would not eat a sentient broccoli that <laughs> thinks it is a goat. <laughs> uh, have you been on Grant's podcast? <laughs> I have, I have not, but he. Uh, you popped in that you were interviewing me tonight and he yeah. he responded with that question. So, <laughs> uh, good old grant. Yeah. I, the first, grant. the first like 25 minutes of that podcast, we were just talking about how I love Scrapple and he doesn't. And it went off the rails from there. Um, <laughs> not sure how that, how that happened, but sometimes I try and do a good job. Sometimes we end up talking about, things other than comics um i don't want to keep you too much longer eric but i um you know i wanted to ask because i i, I usually start off here but um we were talking about uh the the comic uh, about blacksmith and about some other things but um it kind of w- what started you wanting to be you know a writer in particular and like comics specifically did you would you, did you have a love of comics as a kid? Did you come to it later? Kind of how did you discover it and find your way to now, you know, with several series and a uh, Ringo nominated editor and, you know, how'd you get here? So I discovered comics in the sixth grade. Uh, I was at a buddy's house and he had a copy of Wolverine 37 that he had that was just torn to pieces. It was, uh, you know, the cover was falling off. It was sitting on the floor mm-hmm. of his bedroom and, you know, he had to go talk to his mom about something. So I picked up the comic and was just reading it. And I was just immediately hooked. And it's uh Larry Hama and uh, Mark Silvestri. Wolverine is in uh, like Spanish revolution, pre-World War II uh, fighting Nazis and also Lady Deathstrike in his time traveling adventure. And none of it makes sense. And I, I don't know what it was that uh, that that hooked me so thoroughly, but right. from that moment on, it was it was comics, comics, comics until I was about fifteen or so, and uh, you know, I I, I kind of gave up comics in favor of of more adult pursuits or young mm-hmm. adult pursuits, you know, sports and girls as as one does at fifteen, and um, not all of us, Eric. I didn't play any sports. <laughs> <laughs> But I I had sort of always known I wanted to be a writer. Uh, You know, I think I had tricked my mom and dad into thinking I wanted to be an engineer for a while so that I could get in, you know, so they'd help me pay for college. And then uh, immediately switched majors. I think I lasted three semesters as an engineering student before I switched over to uh, an English and writing major. Uh, I didn't think it was comics. I thought I wanted to write science fiction novels. but. Prose is maybe not something I have the pa- the patience for. Uh, comics, uh, they're faster. Uh, 
and and I I discovered I was at a Barnes and Noble and I picked up the first authority trade paperback. And uh the authority the, the first volume of both the authority and planetary uh Wildstorm published the complete first issue script as back matter. Okay. And I was looking at the script and how it was formatted and and you know was able to you know flip back and forth between the first page and the first page of script and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can do this. I can't draw a bath, but I can do this. <laughs> um, and, you know, and again, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a fairly for me, at least, I think there are writers who would disagree and everybody's process is different, yeah. but I write comics pretty quickly. And, uh, I do generally write two drafts or a draft and a thorough edit, but even then it's just not as arduous. And the the turnaround from being able to to start a project to finish a project to see a project on the shelves is so much smaller than writing prose. So I think when I say I don't have the patience for general, uh, you know, general prose writing, uh, comics kind of will allow me to tell my stories without you know being stuck in in a room locked in a room for eighteen months writing a novel. Right. Yeah. I mean that's true. I. I I just love when you you see like when you see the art come in. Um, you're able to show somebody like I wrote this. Somebody else drew it, and they they it's a visual medium. So I need I need them. Um, but when you just write something and you know somebody sends you the art, I just I I love it. Um, and it's, it's nothing and like I, it. I I hope that for for people who are writers out there, uh, never lose that sense of wonder and awe and excitement when you get new art in the, uh, in the mail, in the, you know, usually de- elect- delivered electronically, but yeah, that's the best feeling in the world. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, I, I, I put this on, on, on Twitter, but um, I, have, I, have a, I have a short comic in an anthology that's on Zoop right now. And James Greaterex, who I met at the local comic shop down the street from me uh, is the artist he drew and colored and lettered the story. And when I went to the shop to pick up, you know, mine and my brother's comics this past uh, weekend, he had set aside because he drew it traditionally and then scanned it in. And I think he colored and lettered it digitally. But the artwork from like page two, and I, <laughs> I think I was like standing in the comic book shop parking lot crying. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> it amazing. Just, it was just so beautiful. That's and it's so like, amazing. And it's a story about my dad's meatball recipe because it's a comic anthology and a cookbook and i folks who listen to the podcast you've heard this before but um page two is like every every page it's a five-page comic every page is set in a little snapshot of a different decade and a different step in the recipe so it's 69 79 89 99 and then we skip to 2019 but page two is like 1979 so it's like me as a baby my dad and mom in the kitchen and i was just like i he handed me that big, that big page. And I was like a mess. <laughs> well, congratulations. That's awesome. I will, uh, I'll, I'll roll into Zoop, uh, and, and make sure that I'm, I've backed that as soon as we get off the, off the phone tonight. Oh. Yeah. I have this, uh, I have this rule that I will only allow myself to, to buy or acquire comic book memorabilia because otherwise this, I would just be inundated with all of the things. Mm-hmm. Um, I can only buy original art or toys that have in some way, something directly to do with, with something I've written. So 
as you're, you know, obviously this is going to be a podcast and so no one else can see it, but you can see that I've got two Sean Von Gormans, one, the two sisters from uh, uh, Fake Empire, and then his original cover art from No Angel Number 4 uh, behind me. Uh, you can see Richard Pace's cover from the Atlantis Wasn't Built for Tourists trade paperback. Yeah, That's an original. Oh, and then I've, awesome. got, uh, I've got an, a Liana Kangas that I don't think anyone's ever seen before of, of Strummer that uh, they did as a, a commission for me. And I think oh, we're going to wow. print that, print that as uh, back matter in the second trade paperback. Oh, nice. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, well, I can't wait to see that when that trade comes out. So, yeah, but yeah, it's something awesome to have just to be able to hold that original piece of art from your, uh, from something you wrote, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. There's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's nothing, it's nothing like it. So, um, it, it was, it was, a, uh, you know, the, it's, it's been, pretty good uh my you know showing my dad the comic and um this past weekend i let like i surprised him on father's day and let him read it um but yeah anyone who follows me on twitter knows because i've been like tweeting about it incessantly because you know that's what we do we're (laughs) (laughs) um well eric uh i can't thank you enough that we we were able to come on the podcast and talk about this i'm a big fan of blacksmith i can't wait uh, I will be going tomorrow and getting uh, issue one uh, for volume two. And so when you're hearing this podcast, it should only be like a week or two after we recorded it. So you should still be able to get issue one from volume two. And if you haven't read volume one yet, do it. You're going to love it. It's a great noir. It's a great little uh, detective story and supernatural cryptid monster elements. And um, yeah, it's just a really wonderful story. Black and white, Wendell's art's incredible. I just want to say real quick, I took great pains with uh, the issue one of volume two to make it a little standalone story that both uh, will will catch up new readers uh, and re- and also remind uh, returning readers of what where we are to, at this point. But it's oh, also great. done in one. So if you end up just reading it for the first issue, you're getting a complete little story that's going to set up the plot threads for the rest of the uh the rest of the miniseries. Oh, that's smart. That's a good way to do it. Um, anything else, Eric, before I, uh, we, we head out of here that you have coming up? Uh, I do have uh, talks coming out uh, July 19th from Blood Moon Comics. It was a uh, kind of a post-apocalyptic Mad Max uh, sort of story uh, that, uh, uh, game designer, Evan Carruthers approached me to write based on some, uh, some tabletop RPG work that he had done uh, oh, cool. fun little story. It's another example of something that I probably wouldn't have probably wouldn't have said yes to, uh, at any other point, but really happy. I did made me a better writer having to sort of work within the confines that Evan had set up. Uh, so that's a lot of fun that actually will drop in stores the same day as blacksmith the key to his heart number two. All right. And that July 19th. Yes. Oh, that's awesome. Um, all right. Well, listeners, uh, blacksmith, if you haven't read the first volume, read it. Um, and, uh, blacksmith, the key to his heart. Number one is out June 21st. You'll be able to get that. And, um, I'll, I'll just, I'll send a little plug. If, if you go to, um, wave blue world, I think you can still get, the all we ever wanted or maybe someday they're just wonderful wonderful anthologies with some 
phenomenal writers and artists and letters and creators in those in those books. They're just some of my favorite anthologies. You'll discover a new favorite writer or artist. I can just about guarantee it. Um, but uh, yeah, check all those things out. And then for the podcast, rate and review us. And if it's still the month of June when you're listening to this, um, you could go to to Zoop and check out comics from the kitchen. I would appreciate it. And uh, my mother would too, because now that she's read the comic, she really wants a physical copy of it. And uh, so, um, yeah, that's all. Um, so, Eric, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I really, really, really appreciate it. Likewise. Thank you so much, Jimmy. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. All right. Uh, so uh, I, that's it. That's all we got. Um, thanks for listening. And uh, I'll see you next time. Oh, and shout out to my brother, Bobby, uh, Crypto Creator Corner's number one fan. Told him I was going to start doing that. <laughs> Thanks, Bobby. <laughs> this is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptid Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Galvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg but their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one. All you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the Department of Metahuman Affairs or DMA and check it out right now.